your Bibles this morning and turn to John's Gospel, John chapter 12, and we'll read the account, John's account of that first Palm Sunday, but um, actually I want to back up just a little bit and begin with verse 1 if we could. Let's uh, give attention to God's Word. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And he, and he said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charged the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much that we could gather once again uh, on Lord's Day, but also, uh, Father, just to be reminded of that great event that we call Palm Sunday and the things that transpired there. We pray this morning, Lord, that you would give us uh, ears to, to hear and not only to understand, uh, but Father, to, to hear the word that you were speaking to us this morning through this account. That God, that you would encourage us, Lord, um, to trust in you, to, to know the hope that we have only in Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, and pray this in your name. Amen. Well, this morning, as we before we look at our text, I just want to ask you a question. Uh, what do you desire from Jesus? What, what do you want most from the Lord this morning? What do you want Him most 
to grant to you today. Now, I don't mean any disrespect by that last question as if Jesus is a genie in a bottle and all you have to do is rub it and you get three wishes and you can ask whatever you want. I, I, I don't mean that at all. Um, we, we, but if we really were to stop and to think about our thinking about Jesus and about God himself, um, we oftentimes have expectations. There are things that we desire. There are, are things that we want. There are certain ways that maybe we are, are, would really desire for God to work in our lives. And it might be things like if you're single, maybe you would desire that God might give you a godly spouse. Or if you're married but don't have children yet, maybe you desire for the Lord to give you children. Or if you're married and you have children, maybe your desire is, is that your children would always walk with the Lord all the days of their life. Or, or maybe what you desire is a better job or to live somewhere differently. There's, a, there's all these uh, unconscious expectations sometimes that we can have of God that we may not even realize that we have. There's a story of a, of a pastor who had a friend who died and so this pastor was going to his friend's widow uh, to speak to her, to, to comfort her, and to encourage her in the loss of her husband. And, and so he went to her and he, he said, you know, I just, I just want to remind you in this time of difficulty that God is still good and that he works through circumstances. The believers who die are immediately in the presence of the Lord in heaven, which is much better than being here on earth. Uh, he was reminding her of God's sovereignty and reminding her that God has a purpose for all things, even in her husband's death. And the pastor was doing everything he could to try to encourage this new widow. And she looked at him and she said, you know, I, I appreciate everything that you're trying to do, but, but I don't need to be reminded of these things at this moment in time. She says, what I need is a God who is bigger than all my problems. I need a God who is bigger than all my problems. And, and that's uh, sort of what the Jews felt like they needed in their day and time. That they needed a God who was bigger than all their problems. I mean, you think about it, they were a nation that had been conquered by a foreign power. And so they had soldiers from another country walking through their streets. I don't, we've never experienced that as a nation having a foreign nation uh, dominating us and under their control. And these Roman soldiers not only walked the streets of, of Palestine and in Jerusalem, but they also had great contempt for the Jewish people and their religion. And the Jews knew it. There was nothing more that the Jewish people wanted than to be set free and to, to once again enjoy the freedom that they had, maybe in the glory days of King David when David ruled over and he conquered all their enemies and all of Israel lived at peace with their enemies. What the Jews needed was a God who is bigger than all their problems, a God who would send the Messiah who would deliver them from these foreign devils. Uh, as one commentator uh, pointed out, he said the Passover was always a time when national feeling was ready to blaze up, where any uh, small Spark would have just encouraged the Jews because it was in that time of the Passover that the people were reminded of the re their relationship with God and how God mightily worked in, in their presence. 
And, and this morning, we see in our passage a crowd responding to someone that they think is greater than their problems. And that is this uh, rabbi by the name of Jesus. And, and what was it about Jesus that made them think that he was different, that caused him to stand out, that gave them great hope? How did the Jews view Jesus? And, and I just want to look at that this morning because I think it can challenge and encourage us regarding the way that we ought to look at Jesus this morning. And I would suggest to you that, first of all, they saw Jesus as powerful. They saw Jesus as powerful. Christ had always demonstrated his power over illness, over demons, over creation. Um, we saw that this morning in Sunday school. We were reminded that Mark's gospel is a wonderful gospel to see that in. In just a few chapters, the, the readers are being challenged to see who Jesus is and the authority that he has, not only, like I said, over illness, but over demons and over creation as he calm on the sea. But, but most recently, in the minds of these Jews, was the great miracle that Jesus did regarding Lazarus and how Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And, and the news of this miracle was beginning to spread. Now, there was a large crowd in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover, and I was trying to look it up this week to see what was the population of Jerusalem around in, in Jesus' day. And I will tell you this, it's a highly debated topic. So I can't come to you with a definitive answer saying there was actually this many people in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus' ministry. But it, it's a fair estimate, and I think a common estimate, that it was believed that there was around 100,000 people in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus' ministry. But when the, when the Passover happened, that tiny city swelled to somewhere between 1 to 4 million people. Okay, It was commonly believed that it's like 2.7 to 4 million people in that city at that time. And so there was this large throng of people already in Jerusalem, but there was this other crowd of people who were following Jesus as he rode into Jerusalem. And the smaller crowd, which was no small crowd by any stretch of the imagination, was made up of those who had witnessed Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, or they had gone to the, the dinner party that they had afterwards, and they had seen Lazarus alive. We, we see that in verse 17. It says, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. In other words, they continued to tell people all about Jesus and, and what he had done in raising Lazarus from the dead. And so, uh, you know, kids, you may or may not recall the story of Lazarus. I'm sure the adults do. But it's a fascinating account. You know, Jesus gets word that his good friend is deathly sick. And as a matter of fact, the messengers come and say, Jesus, you have to come right away. He's very close to death. And so what does Jesus do? He waits two more days. He waits two more days until he hears that Lazarus has died, and then he leaves and he goes to where Lazarus is. Now, what's interesting, if you look at John chapter 11, verses 5 and 6, how John describes this. 
John says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, he loves them. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, that, that's, just, that's just the opposite of what we would think. If Jesus really loved them, he would have dropped everything he was doing and he would have rushed immediately to Lazarus so that he could have healed him. But Jesus loved them so much that instead he waited until Lazarus died. Because you see, Jesus had something bigger in mind than just healing Lazarus. Um, and so upon arriving, Mary and Martha, of course, they were weeping for the loss of their brother, Lazarus, who had been dead now for a number of days. And, and Jesus tells Martha in John eleven forty, he says, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? That's what Jesus wanted to do. That's what his purpose was in coming later to Lazarus because he wanted to show the glory of God to these dear, dear, dear friends that he loved so much. And that's exactly what they saw that day. Jesus shows that he has power not only over sickness and over demons and over creation, but he even has power over death itself. And so Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And they saw the glory of God in a way they never experienced. They witnessed the power of God. And, and these people who saw Jesus raise Lazarus continued to tell others what had happened. Hey, we saw Jesus raise this man from the dead. You know, he wasn't just barely dead. He was dead dead. I mean, dead enough that when Jesus said, roll that stone back, I thought, ooh, this is going to stink. Because surely decay has happened. And so Jesus tells him to roll the stones away. And he tells Lazarus to come out. And guess what? He did. He walked out. And so the word spread of Jesus' great power and the might that he had. And, and, and which drew people to Jesus. And look at verse 18. It said, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. And so the Jews saw that Jesus was powerful. But they understood him to be more than just powerful. The second thing they saw is that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, granted, I think even though they understood that he was the Messiah, they did not understand all that was going on in terms of what that meant that Jesus was the Messiah. Uh, they believed um, this as they saw Jesus enter in Jerusalem. And and the reason I say that is because as you look at the text, there are indicators there that, that show us what they were thinking. Uh, look at verse 13. Verse 13 says, So they took branches and palm trees, and they went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now, palm branches in that day were carried before a king who would come back, who had been victorious. And so they saw Jesus as, in this context of this victorious king who was mighty and great. And so they were waving these palm branches uh, to indicate that and, and to, to praise, to sing his praises in essence. Um, but, um, yeah, and, and we see that in a number of places. I mean, even Solomon, when he entered Jerusalem in the procession, you know, on a donkey as he was coming to his throne, the people... Were, were waving branches. But the people also said, Hosanna, which literally means, 
please save or, or save me now, we beg you. And, and uh, this actually was from Psalm 118. And Psalm 118 is a messianic psalm. It was a psalm that looked forward to the Messiah. And if I could just read Psalm 118.25, it says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. And, and that's what they were sort of saying to Jesus. Save us. Save us from this, this Roman army that is invading us. Set us free. Please deliver us, O oh God. But, but even in saying that, to us that may sound more like a plea where they were begging for something. But it was also, in one way, words of praise. Because what they were saying to Jesus is, they said, we think that you were the one who can deliver us. And so save us. Please save us. So they said it with great hope and with great anticipation. And then they go on to say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Which is again a quote from Psalm 118, verse 26. And so they very much saw him as the Messiah because they kept speaking the words of this messianic psalm. Now, it was very uh, common. I mean, it, it was the practice in that day and time that is, pilgrims would come into Jerusalem over the time of the Passover, that they would quote from this psalm. But this was different, because this time they didn't just quote it in sort of a generic sense, they were actually speaking it to a person. They were speaking it to someone specific. They were saying, you are the one, you are the Messiah. And if that were not enough to prove that these people were thinking about Jesus as the king, that the end of verse uh, 13, they said, even the king of Israel. Now, the fact that this is nowhere found in Psalm 118 uh, helps us to understand that the way that these people were viewing Jesus was the king who could deliver them from these foreign rulers. They believed that Jesus came as the Messiah, as the one to rescue them, as the one to liberate them, as their heroes. Now, face it, folks. If, if you were Jesus... And you have authority to heal sickness, you can cast out demons, you can control nature, you can raise people from the dead. That's definitely someone you can get behind, right? That's someone who you believe really could be your liberator. And, and they saw all these things in Jesus, and yet they did not see who Jesus really was. They saw him as the Messiah but a Messiah that really was sort of conformed to their way of thinking. They saw him, but they missed him. They wanted him, but not for who he truly was. They wanted a Jesus who could meet their expectation. I guess you could sort of say they wanted a, a superman or a champion. They, they, they wanted someone who could give them what they wanted, someone who could free them from the Romans. And, and even the, the Pharisees recognized the people's hope in Jesus. And, and it really actually sort of scared them. Uh, after Jesus healed Lazarus and raised him from the dead, then the Pharisees made this observation in John chapter 11, verse 48. He says, uh, if we let him go, the Pharisees are saying this, if we let him, that is Jesus, go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. The Pharisees were afraid that the Romans would see Jesus as a threat and come into Jerusalem and to destroy it. Now, 
Brothers and sisters, we are not immune from thinking like the Jews of Jesus' day, whether it be consciously, whether it be unconsciously, where we might at times seek to conform Jesus to our expectations. I mean, we see this even in the church, do we not? I mean, even in the contemporary church, in the prosperity church, who is Jesus? Isn't Jesus the wealthy entrepreneur? Isn't Jesus the one who will make you wealthy and prosperous? Or, or what about the seeker church? Jesus is the therapist. He's sort of the, the self-help guru. Uh, Jesus matches what we want him to be oftentimes. Even in conservative churches, Jesus sometimes is the politician, right? He's the Republican or he's the Democratic Jesus. He's the Jesus that's going to make your nation better. And if you just turn to him. And in viewing Jesus in this way, what we're doing is, is what the crowd did as Jesus rode into Jerusalem. We are acknowledging that he is powerful. We are acknowledging that Jesus is the Messiah, that he came to save. But in doing so, we often try to make Jesus who we want him to be. So whether we're talking about the first century Jew or the 21st century Reformed Christian, we can make this mistake in our perception and in our understanding. What we must remember is, is that Jesus defines himself. And that's what Jesus does as he comes into Jerusalem on that day. He actually is giving a statement. Actually, him riding into uh, the city is sort of a visual parable, if you would, uh, that he is seeking to convey. Uh, look at verses 14 and 15 in the passage. And it says, and, and Jesus found a young donkey and he sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on the donkey's colt. Now, Jesus in conveying that was saying, I am the Messiah. Because this is a quote from Zechariah chapter 9, which is a messianic passage. Let me read Zechariah 9.9. 9. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, I, I'm sure that if we were to think about this great king riding into Jerusalem who's going to deliver uh, Israel from their enemies, we wouldn't think of him coming in as a, on a donkey. We might think of him riding in more as a war horse with a sword on the side and a uh, crown on his head. Or, or some kings would come in maybe on chariots, some kind of wheeled cart or something like that. But Jesus rode in on a donkey, on a humble animal, on an animal of peace. And I can guarantee you that there, if, if there had been a Roman soldier there watching these events, which I'm sure there probably was, but if, no Roman soldier in the garrison of Jerusalem who saw Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey would have reported it to his centurion that Jesus looked like one who came to take the kingdom of Judah out of the hands of the Romans. That's not at all. He wouldn't have thought that Jesus was coming to drive out Pontius Pilate and his legions and achieve independence for the Jews with the sword. That's just not the image that Jesus came. Because Jesus was showing that he was the Messiah. But let me go on and read from Zechariah 9, because the Messiah not only came in riding on a donkey, on a humble beast to bring peace, but then we read in Zechariah 9.10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, 
and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. You see, in this verse, we see God's sovereignty of, of the king that, that, that God is going to put on the throne of Zion. That his reign is to establish peace on the earth. He doesn't come with a war horse. He comes on a donkey. He comes in humility. He comes to bring peace. He comes to destroy the war horse and, and, and break the battle bow. And, and to not only give peace, um, but he does so uh, worldwide. He does it from sea to sea. And so he doesn't do it through some military campaign, but through some other means. The prophet chooses the donkey as the mount upon the which the king will ride. And so Jesus enters on a donkey, an animal associated not with the rigors of war, but with the pursuits of peace. And so Jesus enters in Jerusalem that day as the Prince of Peace. Jesus came to go to Calvary's cross. He came to bring peace, not as the world knows it, but a peace with God Almighty. That was something that wasn't even on the radar of the Jews at that time. Now, I don't know if you recall the triumphal entry account of Luke's Gospel, but in Luke 19, verse 41, Jesus says this, and it says, And when he drew near and saw the city, he, that is Jesus, wept over it. And he said, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. In other words, you guys don't see it. I am coming to bring a peace that you don't even understand, but that peace has been hidden from you. And, and so the Jews did not see the peace that Christ brought because they thought that the peace would only come if the Romans were removed. They thought the peace would only come if Jesus set up an earthly kingdom and conquered Israel's enemies. What about us today? What about us today? Where, where do we seek for peace? Where, where do we seek for joy? Where do we seek for, for meaning of life? What are the things that we turn to? What are the things that we participate in? If someone were to follow us around for a week and look at us in the way that we spent our time and the pursuits that we have, what would they say would be the source of our peace? What are we looking at? Are we looking to find that in our job? Are, are we trying to reorganize our life to maybe where we have a less hectic life and so life is more quote-unquote peaceful? Are, are, are we looking to our government to somehow fix all the problems of our country? Some think if President Biden's agenda would just get through, then that would fix everything. There are others who would think if we just had some other president, everything would be fixed. You know, where, where are we looking for peace? Are we like uh, the Jews where they were looking to David to a bygone day and think if things were only like it were when I was younger, then we would have peace. It's so easy to look to God to somehow change our circumstances in hopes that it will make our lives what we think they should be. But it's so easy to think of Jesus as the fixer of our lives to make, us, to make our lives more comfortable. We could be tempted to take Jesus and make Him what we want Him to be. 
But Jesus says, I have come to be your king, to rule over you. I have come as the powerful and the mighty one to bring you the only true peace possible, which begins with peace with God. Jesus says, I have come, brothers and sisters, to rule over your heart and change your desires from, from simply desires for the things of this world to change it to make them desires to know and to love God and to rest in me. And that can only happen if I go to the cross, Jesus says. So, so here we have this crowd praising Jesus because they somehow think that he's going to make their lives better. And, and in contrast that, we see a totally different attitude in the opening verses of, of this chapter. Uh, we have an account of a dinner party. Most likely this was a, a dinner party that was put on in honor of Jesus for raising Lazarus from the dead. And so there at this dinner party was Lazarus reclining with Jesus and Martha and Mary. And, and of all the things that happened that night at that dinner, the only things that, that God chose to record, or the main thing, was what Mary did. Lazarus was reclining with Jesus. Martha, of course, was busy serving as she always does. But where was Mary? Look at your text. Where was Mary? Actually, Mary was where Mary always is. Mary was at the feet of Jesus. When, when Mary and Martha had Jesus over for a dinner party, Martha was busy doing all the work. Do you remember that? And where was Mary? Sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to him, listening to his teaching, hanging on his every word. Martha was complaining, Lord, tell Mary to do something. She's not helping me out. But Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus. When Lazarus died and Mary heard that Jesus was coming, she ran out to meet him. And where was she? She fell at Jesus' feet. And she poured out her, her heartache and her grief over the loss of her brother. And now once again, Jesus, uh, Mary is at Jesus' feet. And she takes a pound of expensive ointment and she anoints Jesus' feet and she wipes it with her hair. And she poured out actually so much perfume on the feet of Jesus that the way John describes it is that the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Kids, have you ever had that? Your mom puts on so much perfume, you're like, oh, good night. Oh, wow. Could have done with a little bit less. Or maybe, maybe your teenage son. I don't know. But anyway, you know, you're just like, oh, wow. That's a lot. That's how much she poured on. She, it was not, she didn't give a skimpy amount to Jesus. She extravagantly gave Jesus all that she had. And so we see this beautiful act of worship that's going on in, in this uh in this gathering. Of course, there's Judas there that he doesn't get it. And so we read in verse 4, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. And of course, you know, Judas didn't care about the poor. He just wanted to steal the money. You know, he just, he just gave, uh, he just attempted to mask his sin of greed, okay, and theft 
with his religiosity. But he was making it sound like he cared for the poor, but he didn't really do so. So you have sort of Judas in contrast to Mary, who was primarily concerned about Judas, right? Uh, Judas was a user. He used Jesus to get what he wanted, just like the crowd. As they were praising Jesus, they were praising Jesus, but they were doing so because they thought that he would deliver them from the Romans. But you have Mary here who's different. To her, Jesus was not someone to use, but her Lord and her King, who she gladly served. Mary gratefully gave all that she was to Jesus, not looking for what she could get from Him, but gladly submitting to Him. Because on that first Palm Sunday, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, He did so willingly, knowing that he was really coming to lay down his life for sinners like Mary that had no hope of true peace. Jesus didn't come to simply make our lives better on this earth or to give us more comfort in this life or to fulfill our desires, but he came to do so much more than that. He came to give us, first of all, peace with God, peace with other people, and even peace they could abide in our lives living in the midst of a fallen world. And the only way we could have such peace is if our enemy's sin is conquered. Because sin, I don't know if you thought about this or not, but sin is really the great disruptor of life. You know, sin destroys, disrupts our relationship with God. It destroys our relationship with others. Even with nature, nature is affected by sin. But if you remember our study that we just finished on Psalm 23, we're reminded that Jesus is the great shepherd who loves his sheep and he cares for them. And, and so we read in, in John chapter 10, verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And so Jesus laid down his life to set us free from the guilt and power of sin. And one day, brothers and sisters, glory be to God, one day he'll set us free from the presence of sin as we go to be with him for all eternity in heaven. Jesus has set us free from that which we would no longer be captive to, the sin that makes everything about us and what we want. He has set us free from that. And instead, we are set free to live in the freedom of not my will, but your will, O Lord. We are set free from wanting everything that we want to thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the rule over my heart and life that's, brothers and sisters, where true freedom comes from. You know, it's very common um, during Easter, during Christmas, for preachers to feel sort of unusual pressure. If, you know, as, as, as I talk to preachers, you know, they're, they're always trying to uh, figure out a way to share something new, something different about the Easter story or about the Christmas story. Because it's like our people have heard this over and over and over and over. 
And so oftentimes preachers feel the need to somehow come up with something new to tell us uh, that we need to hear so that it can just reach people right where they're at. But brothers and sisters, all I want to share with you this morning is the old, old story of Jesus and His love. If you would, take your Trinity Psalter hymnal and turn to number 438. 438. I just want to close this morning by reading the words of this great hymn, I'd Love to Tell the Story by Arabella Hanke. It just sort of sums up so well what Christ has done for us. She writes, I'd love to tell the story of unseen things above, of Jesus and His glory, of Jesus and His love. I'd love to tell the story because I know it is true. It satisfies my longings as nothing else would do. The refrain says, I love to tell the story, twill be my theme and glory, to tell the old, old story of Jesus and His love. I'd love to tell the story, more wonderful it seems, than all the golden fancies of all our golden dreams. I love to tell the story, it did so much for me, and that is just the reason I tell it now to thee. I love to tell the story, tis pleasant to repeat, what seems each time I tell it more wonderfully sweet. I love to tell the story, for some have never heard the message of salvation from God's own holy word. I love to tell the story for those who know it best, seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. And when in scenes of glory, I sing the new, new song, will be the old, old story that I have loved so long. I love to tell the story. Will be my theme of glory to tell the old old story of Jesus and his love. Let's bow our heads and meditate upon this this morning. Jesus, we thank you so much for your wonderful love that you demonstrated in going to the cross on our behalf. Oh Lord, we ask for your forgiveness when we come to you and view you only as a, a heavenly vending machine to get the things that, that we want. The Lord, maybe 
even unawares to our own self, we're really somehow looking to you to try to make our life better, happier, more comfortable. And we forget, oh God, that you are about so much more than that. That you are about dealing with our hearts and laying aside those desires. Instead, delighting and desiring in you. Oh God, I pray that we might be like Mary. That is so overwhelmed with who you are. That we are compelled, oh God, to worship you in giving of ourselves wholeheartedly to you. Oh, we pray, Lord, as we leave this place. That we would love the old, old story so much. That we would be compelled, oh Lord, to tell those who have never heard it. Oh God, please, this week, give us opportunities to speak to others of Jesus and his love. It's in your name we pray.